0: I was one of those kids who gained maybe 30 pounds upon upon arrival to, to school. It was really terrible. The mashed potatoes, the really good roast beef, and all the, you know, mac and cheese night.
1: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rothbard. Have you found your way into the world of Susie Karache and the mega popular YouTube channel and website The Mediterranean Dish? I sure have. Born and raised in the cosmopolitan Mediterranean city of Port Said, Egypt, Susie was a boat ride away from such diverse places as Italy, Turkey, Lebanon, Greece, and Israel. In this episode, we hear about Susie's unique story that had her leaving Egypt to attend college in the United States and eventually settle in Atlanta, Georgia. We talk about her great new cookbook, The Mediterranean Dish, and what excites her in the kitchen today. This is such a cool episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Susie Karache, welcome to The Taste Podcast.
0: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
1: Awesome to see you in, in person.
0: <laughs> I know.
1: And The Mediterranean Dish is, is out soon. It's out this fall.
0: Yes, yeah, September 13th. I'm
1: excited. It's, it's a great book, and I, I want to get into the book uh, later. But first, let's get a little bit into your story because I, I feel um, you've lived—you uh, grew up in Port Said, Egypt, which you call a boat ride away from places like Italy, Greece, Turkey, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel— did you visit all these places growing up? Because, I mean, you're boat ride away from all of these amazing places.
0: Yeah. So Port Said is, is a main port of Egypt and a kind of a hub, um, a commerce hub. And I didn't, as a child, go to all these places. I did more as an adult, uh, some traveling. But as a child these boats would bring in all sorts of people from across the Mediterranean. And Port Said itself has a lot of people from different parts of the Mediterranean living and working and so forth. So, yeah, it kind of just felt like a, a whole melting pot of Mediterranean flavors. <laughs> Unbelievable.
1: And, and you yeah. write about that in your book. Um, yeah. It's not an Egyptian cookbook. But I'd like to hear, what what is the food like in Egypt for our listeners yeah. who maybe haven't been familiar, yeah, with have been familiarized with that part of the world.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a, I, the answer should be straightforward, but it's ne- yeah. it's never straightforward because Egypt is one of those places, just because of the location and particularly par- particularly port Said as a as a port. Um, so it's North African, it's Middle Eastern, it's Mediterranean. There's all sorts of flavors there. So. Not to say that Egypt doesn't have its own national dishes. There's mudemmes, which is our fava bean. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's sort of a porridge slash dip that everybody eats almost every day. And we have a bunch of other things um, that are very Egyptian that have now kind of— uh, taken off and become popular, like mm-hmm. Kushari. Um, oh, yeah, right, um, Kushari, for sure. Uh, which Mujaddara is, is a version of Kushari that they have other places of the Middle East. But just because of of the way Egypt has been and the way that uh, it's kind of like the center of that part of the world yeah. in so many in so many ways. And so, so many people have brought their flavors with them when they moved to Egypt. Um, and we've in turn also exported our flavors. So it's kind of like hard to say this is what the flavors or this is what, so I grew up eating, uh, a lot of Italian, a lot of Greek, a lot of Middle Eastern, um, food. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a big deal. Like it wasn't a thing where my mm-hmm. mom stopped to say, "Oh, we're gonna have Italian today." It's like, <laughs> right. hey, "Okay, you naturally know? on the
1: table of your it's family." It's all yeah, yeah. All
0: the flavors kind of come together.
1: What makes good mujdara What makes it so? Um, like, I, I feel like I, I get it a few places here in New York, but I, I've never actually made it myself.
0: Oh, you gotta make the one on the Mediterranean Dish
1: definitely, definitely.
0: <laughs> Shameless plug.
1: No, no, everything everything's on the table here. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. So, I. To me, so mujaddara is one of the simplest dishes, and and uh, it's basically black lentils, rice, and lots of onions, and really the flavor profile is all onion, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the. And the secret to it is is not to hurry the whole sautéing of the onion base, right? So you start with a couple of really large uh, yellow onions that are grated and you kind of cook them up in extra virgin olive oil until they kind of collapse into this caramelized situation. And mm-hmm. then you add your rice and and lentils and all that. So it's it's all in the onions the secret is
1: <laughs> so smart i agree it's that small <laughs> i, I so. know I'm, I'm the, the pieces are being put together because there's like an inherent sweetness with Yes, that is, we crave like i think the american palate is, is really crave sweetness like sweetness yeah. and so the onions yeah. make it's it that it's
0: such a humble dish yeah. that is so iconic throughout the the, the middle east and, and in egypt we have our own version which is kushari, where we add mm-hmm. more uh, starch, basically mm-hmm. <laughs> to it. so, yeah,
1: so uh, let's talk about the restaurants growing up because you, you've mentioned these cuisines that kind of have come into the port. yeah, um, yeah. I just want to know like what's re- what are re- what's what's it like going out to eat in in Port said what what are are you going to like a trotteria? Are you going to like a kebab restaurant?
0: all any and so all, cool. anything you can imagine oh, and man. and uh, so, so, okay, I will be uh, honest with you. We did not go out a ton to eat. My mom is a great cook, and we ate mostly at home. But when we did go out, my dad preferred kind of the local, the very, very local places and mostly seafood. So one of my favorite restaurants, and I'm not sure if it's still there or in the same location. It might have moved, but it was a seafood Restaurant right on the sand, like on the beach. Oh, one. So it was just like one big hall, big open windows and doors, and you kind of just went up there and you ordered whatever fish that you wanted, and you also told them how you wanted it prepared.
1: What kind of fish are you getting?
0: All sorts. Oh my gosh, all sorts of fish, shrimp and and. Uh, clams and all of that so yeah. but you would go up and actually kind of look at the bins of whatever they caught that day mm-hmm. and you would kind of point to you know this is the best or whatever mm-hmm. and you want to have that cooked in which way and point they will do it for you. and cook? <laughs> Just, yeah, point and cook. Point and cook. <laughs> yeah.
1: What's a seafood dish from the from the book that that, uh, I, that really shows what you're up to?
0: Yeah, so there's a couple of well seafood dishes that are that are really from Egypt, from home. One is from Alexandria, which is kind of os- opposite side of the Delta, mm-hmm. three hours away from where I grew up. But that's where we we, we went to vacation. We vacationed on the Mediterranean. Yeah. Still, <laughs> we didn't go far. So one dish uh, is semak meshwi, which basically translates to um, grilled fish, mm-hmm. and it's a whole fish. Uh, like a trout, a sea bass, any of those, you could cook it that way. And in Alexandria, um, they would cook it on these makeshift grills that are basically just open f- open flame with like a very thin layer of, I don't know, cast iron or a tin or mm-hmm. whatever. And they would throw the fish on there after having marinated it in onion and cumin and garlic and whatnot. And it just kind of – you get it off the grill and you got to eat it immediately. And it's the most – um, messy thing yeah. in the best way possible. It's so great and to have that whole yeah. fish
1: platter in yeah. Front of you. Yeah, and they yeah. would
0: grill the veggies right on there. So you had semak meshwi and salata meshweya, which is basically grilled salad. And you mm-hmm. you ate that right, right there and so quickly. <laughs> we'll get into
1: some salads. I want to get. M- Back to your story, you moved to Toronto uh, to finish high school. Yeah, but then eventually ended up in uh, Grand Rapids, yeah. uh, near where I grew up, uh, and went to Calvin College. Yeah, so so let's talk about Midwest yes. cuisine and mashing with uh, you know the Mediterranean yeah flavors that you cook with. What is there like a dish that kind of mashed the two together?
0: Man, that's a, that's a great question. When I first started the site, the mediterraneandish.com, I, I, I wrote more of my mom's recipes and what I grew up with and some of my mother-in-law's recipes, which my mother-in-law is Jordanian. Her mom was Palestinian. Uh, so those are the two, like, really vividly available flavors, I mm-hmm. suppose, that, were, that made it on the site all the time. But then uh, the more I cooked, it was more whatever I had on hand here. Uh, so I can't really even point to a particular flavor combo, but more the technique, more sure. more the ingredients that were available to me. I just cooked them the Mediterranean way, and so All good. The, yeah. so I I do that in Atlanta now. So where yeah. you know peaches are a big deal in Atlanta, and one of the recipes in the book is this peach and tomato panzanella situation. That kind of marries my. If, my affinity for Italian food was, you know, the peaches of Atlanta. I love that. What, so what?
1: what <laughs> Georgia were you, peach. What were you eating in the Midwest? What were you? growing up, going to college. Uh,
0: man, so I, I was one of those kids who uh, gained maybe thirty pounds upon upon arrival to school. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it was really terrible, <laughs> but I mean, it was great food, and it was. I wasn't. You know, none of it was bad. I just didn't eat that way growing yeah, up. So, really like different. the mashed potatoes, the the really good roast beef, and all the you know mac and cheese night at yeah. school, and yeah. lots of pizza and all that. So, um, just your average college yeah, fair, right? Yeah. So I, I ate a lot of that, and then I went home and lost all that <laughs> yeah. without even trying. Yeah. So.
1: Well, I mean, I, I know that feeling when you go to college and you have, like, this this dining hall and you've yeah. got, like, all the middle. It's I went like an
0: all-you-can-eat, It's it's burgers insane. and pizza and whatever. I'm like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I wonder
1: if it's like that now. You know, I wonder if, like, dining halls or if it's actually adjusted. Uh,
0: I think they have—I I know for sure at Calvin they have— uh, switched pretty quickly and and adapted and offered yeah. a lot more uh, new things and and even more international flavors which is really exciting yeah. but at the time I was one of three Egyptians so Yeah. It's exciting.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah it's a small it's a small mid-sized town and yeah. you know diversity is maybe not what it was known for back when you were in school.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is it's more now. Great. I think, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. What about This idea of salad whiskey. I think it's genius, (laughs) first off. Yeah. I think we explain it and we can get into it. Because salad whiskey, it's a technique. It's not adding whiskey to salad. It's something different.
0: Right. Salad whiskey is a term that my dad coined. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) My my dad, he was in charge of the extras. So it's like the little feta plate, the salad, the whatever, the pickles, the small things that got on the table. That was his domain. He liked (laughs) to add all these things. So when he was in charge of making salad, he really literally only used three ingredients, tomato, tomato cucumber and like parsley. And then he would, you know, add a ton of citrus and and olive oil and give it a good seasoning of, you know, salt and that's it. But he would let it sit for a bit, you know, 10, 15 minutes and allow, you know, the juices of the tomatoes and cucumbers to kind of fall to the bottom. And when we ate the salad, he kind of collected that juice, that uh, dressing, if you will, and, and he would just kind of pour it into a small glass and he would take it like a shot of whiskey. And he's like, you know, this is where, this is where the secret is to this salad. So
1: it works in so many yeah. ways. So like the idea that you're aging "Quote unquote aging your salad dressing for a few minutes, but it, yeah. it's true when you have like mostly cucumbers and 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 herbs and citrus. It needs that time to marinate. Yeah, and but then you also have the idea of shooting it as a as a. It's, <laughs> it's just cute and, and yeah. cool.
0: He loved he loved to do that. So now. My children actually fight over the salad whiskey, and <laughs> I have to pour a little bit cute. for each person to have, which we love. So you uh,
1: you you call you make a regular hummus, which is cool and 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 pretty you know pretty straightforward in a cool way. But then you have loud hummus. It's called yeah. loud. I love that.
0: Yeah, it's it's this the meanest, loudest hummus you will have, <laughs> which is, is is with a layer of uh, and this is this isn't. Unique to how I make it, a lot of people in the Middle East will make this layered hummus with a uh, ground beef or lamb and then layer it with maybe some veggies and whatnot. And so it's hummus with hashua meat, mm. and it's just the meanest hummus you will have. <laughs> I love it so li- good. You just like. You just can't help but dig in,
1: and it really reinforces the idea that hummus can be a meal. It's not just the thing you get at CVS uh, in a, a plastic container. Yeah,
0: I hope you don't. Do you get it at CVS? I um, really hope you don't.
1: I, I, I love, I love the question. <laughs> um, let's go there. So I do because I think the Sabra. Not to, not to get get angry at a brand, but the no. Sabra hummus. That's not really hummus. That's oh, like a yeah? thing. But, like, I kind of like the thing. Like, yeah. I kind of like that flavor. It's, like, yeah. citric acid. Yeah. Mostly I get, like, so it's very tart. Yeah. And, like, in a pinch. I, but, no, I don't, I, I, I
0: don't. You make your own.
1: I, I have. Yes. I, I don't. I kind I, I of buy it at places yeah. I like.
0: Yeah. That's Okay. It's it's a no judgment zone. I feel
1: like I'm not being judged. You're not do, you're not giving <laughs> no, me a judgment. No, I'm not
0: judging at all and I've been there myself yeah. and I you know what? I I'd rather have something than not and and when I'm in a pinch yeah. I will open I will open up um, a little um, tub of hummus and kind of doctor it up a little bit and add things to it and make it a little bit better but Nobody needs to know that.
1: Nobody needs to know no, that. You, but, but nobody needs I, to know that. I, I just that. think that in the, when you travel <laughs> the region of the Mediterranean, if you're traveling yeah. through Egypt or Israel yeah. or wherever, you're yeah. getting hummus with meat. Yes. It's like, and it is loud yeah. in a way. It's, it's I
0: mean, amazing. and so what you've been
1: to yeah. that part of the world
0: yeah. and there are places that are hummusias that are just... Strictly hummus, yeah. hummus every which way you want to have, <laughs> and it's it's just amazing, and it's a, and it's a bit of a rivalry among some of these places, like who makes the best hummus and who makes the best pita, yeah, and falafel, all these things here yeah. their own um, their own competition.
1: It's all pretty anyway. pretty wonderful. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even dare say one's better than because it's all really wonderful. It is. Um, let's talk about fool because I feel. You're, you've got this recipe for full mm-hmm. um, mudamas, mm-hmm. and it uses canned fava beans. And I actually never really cook with canned fava beans. Oh. I'm so conditioned to use canned chickpeas. Yes. But I, I, I was like reading through your book and, and seeing the photos, yeah. and I'm like, canned favas is awesome. So, how do you cook with yeah. canned favas?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not very different from how you would warm up some canned chickpeas really or even pinto beans or some other bean of sorts the way that we make full mudamas the way my father my late father made it he would he would uh, you know cook the beans overnight and they're yeah. like you know from scratch obviously until they kind of just com- completely collapse and and turn into this wonderful mm. mush so to speak mm-hmm. uh I don't have that time. And also, um, I cheat a lot in mm-hmm, <laughs> the way mm-hmm. that I cook. So I just grab a couple cans of, of fava beans. I warm them up in some olive oil and kind of smash them with a potato masher and add to them all sorts of jazzy things. And What's it,
1: that? What are the jazzy it be- things?
0: It becomes a meal. I like to do this. I spike it with a little bit of um, uh, a dressing that's made of garlic and jalapeno mm-hmm. and a lot of citrus, a lot of lime or lemon juice. Mm-hmm. And then I chop up some tomatoes and and a bunch of herbs and I kind of mix this whole thing together in a good, I don't know, Jamie Oliver calls it, is it a lug of olive oil, like a just a generous amount yeah glug glug <laughs> yeah, glug, glug we had glug. Jamie
1: in the studio yeah. about six months ago and did he, you really Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I feel like we did talk about the glugs and I, glugs an,
0: a nice glug of extra virgin mm-hmm. I, you know I, I I, think I'm in that school as well <laughs> I love you it
1: you sell so. olive oil too right we do I, I, I'm on, plugging you're not so oh, just to be clear that's so sweet what, how do you sell olive oil like what is how does that work
0: on our site, themediterraneandish.com, we we have a shop uh, that you can just kind of browse our yeah. different olive oils from different parts of the Mediterranean. We we carry Greek, Italian, Spanish. We carry Palestinian. We we just we keep adding yeah. <laughs> to yeah. the collection of olive oils. But we also um, uh, carry grains and couscous and. All sorts of spices that people might not be able to find easily um, at a, your average grocery store. Yeah. And, and so we, we've we kind of came because people continue to ask, Where do you get yeah. this? Where do you get that? And so we decided that we were just going to make it easy for people to, Super easy. to eat the Mediterranean way. That's so nice. That, yeah.
1: Back to favas. Am I buying canned favas at like ShopRite?
0: You can. It's You can find it at most. Well, most, I would say, like, well, I don't know if I want to say most grocery stores, but a lot of them that have an international food section will have it if you have a Middle Eastern, Mediterranean grocery store near you. And we probably will have to carry. Ful at some point, yeah. fava beans at some point online as well. I want to, so.
1: I want to seek that out. I love that. Yeah. Um, another dish is makluba.
0: Yes, uh, makluba. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel <laughs> that's a very special dish. It's very yes.
1: special. I had it in Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, a re, you know, a few years ago. But I, I, that's a dish that I, making at home it seems impossible. Yeah, it's, hard.
0: It's one of those dishes that I say, okay, so all right, listen, uh, I'm going to plug in my. Very dear mother-in-law, Mama Dina, (laughs) who I love, who taught me how to make magluba. (laughs) Uh, So the, the dish is basically... Uh, the word magluba means upside down or yep. turned over uh, which is kind of like the way that it's served and it's basically a, a, a big pot of rice, la- a big pot of rice layered with vegetables like cauliflower eggplant sometimes potatoes and even slices of tomatoes and then within that you'll have either lamb or chicken or even both all of that mm. is kind of cooked together in one kind of taller pot uh, and when it's simmered together and all the flavors kind of marry it's it's my gosh, so good. Uh, it is a labor of love, so we've just had it when we visited her in Detroit, and mm-hmm. it's it's she makes it the best. But once that whole thing is ready, once the pot is ready, you kind of get a big uh, platter, and you invert your uh, pot.
1: The moment of truth. The
0: moment of truth, and you kind of just give it a nice little tap. <laughs> and here it is. It's this big cake of rice with all these layers of deliciousness and you you don't really need much else next to it we serve it with fatouche salad mm-hmm. uh, which is another favorite of mine that's in the book and um, the my first well i was first introduced to that dish by Mama Dina, but it was also the dish that she made for my mom and dad when our two families met, and uh. they were talking marriage and all that jazz. So that's Wait. a very celebratory. They dish. were talking marriage. Yeah, I mean, like so when when well, this is another cultural thing. We're digressing sure. quite a bit here. I but, love uh, this.
1: Uh, let's let's talk about the yeah. the way that you you came <laughs> together. I, I think this is nice.
0: Yeah. So I met my husband at his family's restaurant. Um, uh, they owned. A resta- in, Grand in Grand Rapids, Michigan, they own two restaurants that very Mediterranean restaurants. Uh, one of them was on 28th Street near Calvin College. They have sold them since, mm-hmm. but that's that was where I first met Saba and I scored a free tabbouleh salad. (laughs) And I thought that was so great. And then when we got to know each other some more, he would bring me food from his mom's kitchen and I, it always tasted like home and I kind of fell in love more and more. And then I met her and then I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. this is great. So then my parents came to visit and, and of course, Mama Dina invited them over for a nice big dinner. And, and that was the dish that she served, and, and, uh, the rest is history. We've been together 21 years. Amazing. Thanks to her food.
1: Yeah, thanks to her <laughs> food. It's it's a, it's a great story. You write about it a lot in the book. The I the, do
0: write. Yeah, your
1: relationship and your your relationship with your father too. You write yeah. a lot about your father, which is I love that about the book. Yeah, um, and you also have a story about uh, a couple. You had a couple welders over. Yeah, and, and you made and you made something that you're calling Mediterranean barbecue, which yes. I, I think is something that we don't really think about a lot. Um, you know, in the cookbook world, they're like Middle Eastern, Mediterranean, however you want to phrase it, yeah. barbecue. But tell the story about the welders.
0: Right, yes, yeah, so I'll tell you that. So when we left Grand Rapids uh, and then we moved to follow my husband's career, he was insurance at the time. And so we finally made it to Atlanta and we did not have a home. So we lived in a uh, an extended stay hotel for a few months, mm-hmm. which was very interesting. There was not a proper kitchen for me to cook, and I was just starting the website, and I'm like, I got to cook, I got to make stuff, you know. Yeah. And I've got to feed my family uh, things other than, you know, uh, I don't know, subs and hamburgers. So uh, there, there was a uh, kind of a, a grill by the poolside that, you could use if you really wanted to. So we cleaned the grill and we would cook all sorts of, well, kebabs and such. But uh, we got to know this group of welders who were in town from Tennessee. Mm. And um, they're just as Southern as, I don't know what you might imagine about a Southern person, but they had the accent on all very lovely people, very generous hearted. and uh, But they were set, you know, on their... Food, you know, they love their barbecue. Mm-hmm. They love their, uh, you know, big sauces ribs. with the like ribs and yeah. all this good stuff. And so, as we got to know each other, and they knew that I cooked and and I I like to write about food and whatnot. I they I invited them. One time by the pool and said, "Hey, we're gonna have Mediterranean barbecue," <laughs> and they were a little bit skeptical, but they came and they brought their beer and whatnot. I'm like, "Okay, you can have your beer. I'll, I'll supply the meat," <laughs> and I made this uh, just very simple uh, chicken um, on on the on the grill with just but loaded with all of the flavors that we love, you know. So they uh, they had it with a little bit of tzatziki sauce, and they were like. No, I reckon I like. Oh, Medi- you reckon they'll like <laughs> I it. I reckon I like Mediterranean <laughs> barbecue, I thought.
1: What is, right, what's in well, the marinade?
0: Uh, well, Where's a some... lot of garlic, a lot of citrus, yeah. uh, things like allspice, cumin, yeah. uh, uh, coriander, just things of that nature. And I like to allow the chicken to kind of sit in it for a while and... Kind of soak all the goodness, and are
1: we putting them on sticks like kebab style? Were you we just grilling? No,
0: these were just kind of chicken, chicken thighs, no big deal. Yeah, I mean, we were we had very little to work with at the hotel, so yeah, so it was not, yeah, it was very simple. I'm and, sure your grill setup's then, a little better now. It's, yeah, it is. (laughs) It's a little bit better. (laughs) Improve. We have a home now, thank God.
1: (laughs) Yeah, what's Atlanta like these days? Uh, Let's get into that. It's Uh, one of my favorite food cities in the country.
0: Yeah, no, we love it. And honestly, I've never felt more at home uh, in Atlanta. And the people Mm -hmm. are great, but also the climate is very much close to what I grew up with, nice and hot. <laughs> yeah. So we love it there. And it is, it's is—it's a great food scene. And I wish we got out a little bit more because we're just hermits. Well. And, and uh, don't tell anybody. But, <laughs>
1: yeah, uh. well, I think, mean, you know, we're we're, 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 we're th- it's thawing a bit. You know, we've had COVID a little bit. Yes. It's been a little bit slow to get back. But yeah, for sure. I'm sure you'll be out there and visiting Chaipani at some we're, point.
0: We're out there, yes. And we love Indian food, by the way. So I'm, I'm definitely going to. Check him. I out. mean,
1: Elena's yeah. got uh, marijuana, Ronnie in Decatur, and it's got yeah. uh, Asha Gomez.
0: Yes, Asha, I know. Oh, you know Asha. Asha, she's Asha awesome. I know she's amazing. She is yes. absolutely yes. yes. Um,
1: let's talk a little bit about entertaining because I think one of the main questions we get from from our readers, yeah, is like, how do I uh, deal? How do I do a dinner party for like six or more, like yeah. six to eight? Yeah, I think like four you can kind of handle if you're yeah. a, a pretty proficient home cook, but. When you yeah. get when you get into six, it's like it can be really tricky. Yeah. How do you think about having a group of six to eight or even yeah. more over?
0: Yeah. Well, the secret word is mezze. Mezze, baby. I love it all day long. So we, I mean, and I think you're more familiar with that concept than anybody probably. But <laughs> I, we eat we eat this way, and in fact, the book uh, has the largest chapter in the book is about this whole concept of mezze and kind of just um, working with. You know, small, small plates to share, which okay. allows you to prepare those things ahead of time. And you just set them up one nice big table, of course, starting with the best ever hummus yeah. and then moving from there and even adding in the salads and whatnot. And I, I usually when I have people over, it's it's a lot of mezza and maybe one or two. Bigger dishes that can be prepared in advance and kind of stuck in the oven while everybody's kind of digging into that hummus and and that tabbouleh and other salads and and I I should mention that the book has a ton of recipes that are not necessarily Middle Eastern because Mm -hmm. I think I keep talking about hummus and 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 the flavors that I grew up with but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Spanish and Italian Mm -hmm. in there there's. You know this uh, this shrimp recipe from Spain is one of my favorites to put on a uh, you know, a tapas table for everyone to share. So definitely that's the way to go.
1: Susie, it's great advice. Uh, I, to plan ahead and prepare maybe a couple of days in advance. Yeah. Which seems culturally, like I was talking to Sami Tamini about this before when we interviewed yeah. him. Yeah. It just is a, it's a real like plan ahead, even plan weeks ahead and free, use the freezer to your advantage.
0: Yeah. Some people do that. And I'm going to yeah. tell you I'm very last minute, but okay. I do have my go-to places. Like it's, it's okay yeah. to, you know, I'll mix up my hummus a couple of days ahead and yeah. leave it in the fridge. I'll chop up some veggies, but, uh, Yeah. It's. I'm a very last-minute I person. respect
1: the, 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 the <laughs> candor and the, the radical transparency here. Yeah, yeah. You're not—you know, I'm, I'm as well. I mean, come on. Yeah. Who, who has time to plan? Yeah,
0: and I'm really—I'm a sheet pan gal, yeah. a big skillet gal. Anything that goes in a skillet, I'm good, you know, but I'm just— I'm always prepared with a couple of small dishes to share when people come in. Yep. You know, maybe a big pitcher of mint lemonade.
1: Yeah. Uh, or, you're, you're from Atlanta. Or, you have to have lemonade.
0: Yeah, you have to have lemonade, <laughs> but I make it the Egyptian way, of course. And and we just kind of sit and snack on these things as the skillet or the sheet pan is working in the oven. It's no big deal. I just, what the eating the Mediterranean way is is a lot less formal, at least the way that I grew up, and a lot more about just really savoring the moment and being with the people you yeah. love and kind of just like uh, y- you drop all the formalities and you just go from mezze to dinner without a whole lot of stopping. Uh, there aren't any three-course meals that, I, that mm-hmm. I like to serve. I just like to—it's all one big table, uh, and I just love it that way. So.
1: What's Egyptian lemonade, I have to ask?
0: Uh, we call it— uh, which basically means mint lemonade and you um the trick to it it's a little bit frothy and the trick to it is in addition to the lemon or lime juice you also add a couple of lemons or limes whatever you have on hand uh you just kind of cut them up and you leave the skin on and you put all that in the blender with some ice and a little mm. bit of uh, a little bit of sugar and you blend it all and uh and obviously the flavor is quite intense because of the you know you're, you you kind of you're kinda, using the peel yeah 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 but it also creates this beautiful froth and you just throw in a bunch of fresh mint and this whole thing comes out it's glorious it, rem- it reminds me of the streets of cairo mm. uh, it's the best thing ever i will always make it this way
1: and so you're mixing you've got your blender with all of the citrus peels pith Yes, and and for and then you you're adding sugar.
0: I'm adding some sugar, honey, or raw sugar, whatever you yeah, want to, whatever you want to use. Uh, and I'm adding a a lot of ice, and then um, yes. a bunch of fresh mint. And you just kind of you w-
1: put it in a pitcher, and you, you kind of yeah, oh, yeah. this is cool, Susie. Yeah, I like it's this. The
0: best. That now when I serve it to my friends in Atlanta. It, people do like a little vodka in there. Oh, I've heard I've heard
1: about that spike lemonade <laughs> you, down you there. You spike
0: it. You spike it with a little vodka or gin or whatever. So I, I'll have both <laughs> versions for people and they can do whatever they I like. like that. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Susie. We ask all guests on the Taste podcast if you could write a cookbook or food book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, yeah, or budget, meaning you have an unlimited amount of funds to make this book project happen. What would that book be? I just
0: did. <laughs> I oh, just did. that's the. F- I honestly did, but I I have a lot of other question, uh, a lot of other ideas, ideas. Yeah. Uh, that are kind of just sitting in my head, and and that will hopefully be able to translate into books. But the Mediterranean dish cookbook. Is, is the one that I dreamt of writing, and I'm just mm-hmm. so grateful that Clarkson Potter took it on and allowed me to make it happen. Uh, it is really my heart in that book, and I can't wait for people to cook from it.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful book. I I've, I can't wait to cook more from it, and I really, I just, I think you're such a cool person to get to know.
0: Thank you so much, Matt. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you so much for joining the Taste Podcast. <laughs> Javier Zamora, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's great to have you on here to talk about Solito, uh, your memoir and your poetry and food in in Tucson, where you live now. Yeah, and food in El Salvador and all over. <laughs> exactly, all over. So, as a nine year old, you traveled over three thousand miles by by bus, boat, and foot across the desert and the ocean. And you, uh, you traveled from El Salvador through Guatemala and Mexico and across the U.S. border. And, and I really, I don't want to spoil your beautiful book and your poignant book, but I, I'd like to give our listeners a sense of, of this journey.
2: How long did it take? And what kind of help did you find along the way? So I was born in a small coastal town in El Salvador. And my dad left when I was one years old uh, because of the Civil War. My mom left when I was five And I was left at the care of my grandparents. Uh, By the time that I turned nine, my parents saved enough money to pay someone to bring me here. um, A person known as a coyote. And that person was the same coyote that brought my mom to the United States in 1995. So this was a trusted individual who I knew every year. He um, had a group of me, another 12-year-old girl, um, her mom a young uh, 20-ish year old, a mid-20s man, a probably early 30s man, and another woman in her 30s. So we were that group of seven individuals. And then the Coyote left us in Guatemala, and from Guatemala we were just a group of six. Um, The trip was supposed to take two weeks. It ended up taking two months, um seven of those weeks, we were without the coyote that we knew. There were other coyotes that we found along the way. And slowly we made it to the Sonoran, um, Arizona border. And it was there that um, the group dwindled from six to four. And slowly after three tries, we made it uh, successfully across the border.
1: Well, thank you for sharing uh, the, 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 your story. And um, I just recommend picking up a copy of Solito and getting the full detail because, you know, the way you write about these experiences is just absolutely, it's magical to, to hear it through a, the, the gaze of a nine-year-old. Uh, my question is, you uh, first have ri- written about poetry more than memoir. How did you make that leap from poetry to
2: memoir? You know, both the Book of Poems, Unaccompanied and Solito, are about essentially the same thing and trying to answer the same question, which is, why am I not in El Salvador and why am I in the United States? And in college, I became a history major in Latin American history, particularly Salvadoran history, because I wanted this, answer, this question answered. And the question that I got was the Civil War. And then I started asking my parents about that time and the reasons for their, mig- for their migration. And so that was the gist of my poetry book. And after I answered why my parents were here, I began to remember this horrific journey as a nine-year-old that I took, which trauma the, did this very interesting thing in my mind, which is like I completely blacked that out and slowly... These memories uh, began to come back, and the memories that i that my brain uh, could hold uh, in my early twenties were the ones that I included in soli- in uh, unaccompanied my poetry book after therapy, which I did not have in the writing of unaccompanied, which really helped, um, I began to dive deeper into those memories, and at the same time. Uh, as the memories got more, uh, for a lack of a better term, traumatic, I also wanted to balance them with moments of joy. And these memories were also where the food comes in, for example.
1: Yeah, so one question about the way memory um, translates to the page, Um, and through therapy you've been able to dislodge some of these memories, but how do you know to yourself that these these memories are actually accurate? I mean, is it something that has taken therapy? Is it something that you will never know fully? Because you were so young, nine years old, but clearly some things did stick with you.
2: That was a huge part of therapy. Um, My therapist kept on encouraging me to just trust my memory. I have a very good memory. Um, And what really locked that in for me Is that I had written about the landscape and before moving to Tucson. I moved to Tucson, it just, um, well, I didn't move with the intention of living here. I just came to Tucson for two months in order to finish the book. And part of my time of that research, quote unquote research trip, was to go and find out where exactly in the desert it was that I had traveled through. And so I went with my friend, who is a writer, Paco Cantu, Francisco Cantu, who is an ex-Border Patrol agent. And it's weird that now we're like best friends in Tucson. Um, And so I went with him, and I'm describing these images. And he's like, well, that tree doesn't grow here. Let's go try out this section of the desert, like 50 miles away. Uh, Let's see how you feel about that. And I'm, de- I'm describing railroad tracks and this certain type of cactus. And he's like, oh, that is over here. And I go there and I have this like flashbacks. And then I tell my, my therapist and she's like, yeah, <laughs> like you should trust your memory. And a lot of once I really um, learned to do that, the writing just came And the memory is just unraveled Um, to the point that because there's no way that I could ever really factually know that, you know, X, Y, and Z, but this is the closest to how I lived it is how I wrote it.
1: Thanks for sharing the memory. I mean, this and and the thoughts about memory and, and this leads to my next question and you bring in, you brought it up before is, food on the on the journey on this 3000 mile journey food is life and food was what you sought all the time while you're on the road and you're you're traveling all these miles so what was the food like as you traveled uh from El Salvador to Guatemala
2: to Mexico to the border you have to as for for the listener and reader the 9-year-old in the book is a 9-year-old that rarely left home. I had left my hometown less than 10 times and it was always to run errands in the capital, the state capital and the country's capital. And so wonderment was a huge part of this two-month journey. And this is a nine-year-old who grew up with a grandma who sold pupusas. We had a pupuseria, and I grew up across the street from a clinic and so my first job was selling um, frescos, which is what Salvadorans call um, aguas frescas. You know, what Mexicans call aguas frescas, we call it frescos. So that was my job as a little kid and selling pupusas, eating the burnt cheese on the skillet after my mom, my, my grandma finished the day. And so that was the world that I knew. It was very pupusa-centric uh, and the quesaduro and we had an avocado tree in the back. And so it was avocado, uh, Salvadoran hard cheese, and pupusa-centric.
1: Wow, and so pupusas, for our audience, our listeners, I mean, many may have not tasted a real
2: pupusa. How is that different from a taco? Um, Well, a pupusa, if you want to compare it to anything, it's like our pizza or our quesadilla. You know, Mexicans have the quesadilla, Italians have the pizza, uh, cheese-based, bean-based, pretty much tortilla. It's like a tortilla that we fill up. And we dress with a, for lack of a better word, a kimchi, um, a curtido. uh, And we put that on top and we make a tomato sauce. And that's how you eat it. And we open it up. If you ever ask, if you meet a Salvadoran and they take you to eat pupusas, Never, never eat with a fork and knife. <laughs> <laughs> I love that rule. <laughs> it's offensive. Uh, <laughs> but we open it up and then we put the coleslaw and the sauce inside it and we do eat it uh, kind of like a taco. Did you compare it to a kimchi? Did I hear you right? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, uh, closer to a kimchi than it is to a coleslaw. Uh, at restaurants, they like to call it coleslaw, but I don't think it's like a coleslaw. Um, And so that's what I grew up with. So I I knew not many different types of foods. Pizza I've had and fried chicken. There's like a fried chicken chain in Central America called Pollo Campero that's actually Guatemalan. But if you ask Salvadorans, we think it's from El Salvador. And if you ever fly to El Salvador and come back into the States, the plane is going to smell like Pollo Campero. And so... Those were my top echelon of food. And on this trip, as we make it through Guatemala, southern Mexico, central Mexico, all the way to Sonora, the biggest um, thing that I found out was that the tortillas get thinner and thinner and thinner. And the food gets spicier (laughs) and spicier and spicier. And as a little kid who is alone, Food was tough at times, and, but I knew that I had to eat, and I tried to get my palate used to all these different uh, types of foods.
1: Was there a memory while you were on this this journey? Um, was there a food that you sought out? Was there a food memory that you sought out after you had had it maybe in the beginning of the journey and you were always
2: trying to seek it out? Huh. Um, we had the one of the best fried fish that I've ever had in my life in Acapulco. And I still remember that with so much joy. Um, It was huge, fried perfectly with lime and on top of French fries. And that for most of the trip became the peak, the creme de la creme that I was seeking out. But we never had fish again. And then once we made it to Mazatlán, I, had, I tried tacos for the very first time. And I'm pretty sure they were carne asada, there's some type of meat roadside taco stand run by one woman who did everything. And there was like a huge circle of, of customers around her. And I tried it. And immediately, almost cried because it was this wonderful, amazing, meaty, juicy. It all made sense, and and then that became the dish that I uh, was seeking out.
1: You you write about yuca fries, yuca frita, as your as one of your favorite dishes growing up, and I think that's a yuca fries. You know, our our span culture, and you'll you'll find them in Caribbean culture and. In Spanish culture and in West African culture,
2: so what are the yuca fries of your youth? Yuca frita is again. I I I grew up with a considerable amount of trees and fruit fruit trees, um, and I guess what what is a yuca technically? Like a legume? No. Yeah, a a, fruit, a, tu- a tuber, a tuber. So we had yuca in the back. And whenever we want it, we grew it. And we also grew corn and beans and squash. So we just pulled the yuca from the dirt and cleaned it and boiled it. And then Salvadorans, we have it two ways. You can either have it salcochada, which is just steamed or boiled or fried. And that is your base. And on top, we put curtido, which is our this kimchi-like uh, thing on top with little fried um, fish. They're like baby fish, minnows, um, on top. Or you can have it with chicharrón. And you just put a lot of lime. The curtido could also be painted purple. That's like the by choice. And on top of that, usually you put... Cucumbers, radishes, tomatoes, and a hard-boiled egg. And then you just eat it with your hands. Again, no fork and knives.
1: Do you get this food in Tucson? We'll talk about the food of Tucson. Uh, is there, uh, is there a, a semblance of these uh, pupusas and the yucca fries of your youth? Or are you only seeing these in you know El Salvador?
2: I just moved to Tucson two years ago. I grew up in New York City. I mean, I grew up in San Francisco and then I moved Mm -hmm. to New York City. So those have been the two big cities. And really good yucca is hard to find. And in Tucson, the Salvadoran community is not as big as as New York City or San Francisco. So I haven't found yucca yet.
1: So let's, uh, let's do talk about Tucson because I think it's a city that has multitudes and, and there's a lot of different cultures forming there. And we, we, we rarely talk about the desert southwest on the, on the show. But what's, what's Tucson like as a city in terms of the food?
2: You know, um, I've been very surprised. And everybody who's listening, I was probably the same. If I were to have been listening, I'd be like, Tucson, like, what's in Tucson? You know, this is like in the Southwest. What? I thought there was only Phoenix in Arizona. So that was that was me. Um, and I mostly stayed because of the food. They're trying dope shit here. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, there is, for example, a pizza place that I just tried last night that the... A pr- the guy who runs it was an apprentice at Roberto's, and has brought that pizza here, and it's fucking bomb. Nice, it's that's
1: well, that's great to hear that you can get a little Roberta's pizza. But you also have Chris Bianco, right? Yeah, the guy, you know that's the pizza legend of the of the Southwest.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so there's that. There's this new restaurant that opened up that feels like you're in uh soho or or I don't know in like a fancy restaurant in New York City and it just has that feel, the ambiance, and they're going for it. They're their best they smoke everything elegantly and they the best dish is like a smoked uh radish barbecue uh mushroom. It sounds Whoa. weird. That's a, sounds that's a that's a that's a curveball for me. Yeah. Yeah, but it tastes amazing. And of course, you know, it's the Southwest. The Mexican food here is different than the one that I grew up in the Bay Area and the one that I found in in New York City. It is North Mexico-based, mostly Sonoran, and it's fire. <laughs> um, and the best place here is Penca, who we love, and... Who has a, the best chocolate vegan tart that I've ever had in my life?
1: Describe Sonoran cuisine because I think our listeners and myself included, we we sometimes think about Texas and Arizona being quote unquote Tex Mex, but that's not Sonoran. That's very different. These are two different styles, both are both are unique and both are cool. But like what's Sonoran? What does that mean to you when you say Sonoran cuisine?
2: I'm not Mexican, but for me as a Salvadoran, the difference in, in the food would be this chile, which is called chiltepin. And it's the oldest uh, chile. It's like the one that all the other peppers grew out of. And it's native to Sonora. And a lot of the food has that. And you can dry it, you can eat it green, or you can dry it and crush it in a chiltepine grinder, and then you put that on the food. To me, that is what makes most of it differently. Their tortillas are thinner, bigger, flour-based, not corn. Um, and so those two are very basic but huge differences.
1: Great call. You talk about the wheat, uh, wheat uh, being grown in that, in that region and having flour tortillas being part of the cuisine as opposed to corn. Are you? Let's let's trans- transition. To talk about your own cooking. So, what have you picked up some things in uh, in
2: in your new hometown of Tucson? I have chiltepín uh, on call, and I've experimented with it. I'm still experimenting with it. It is sometimes it's really spicy. Sometimes it's not. I add it to my beans, but that that's as out there as I get. I do try to make mostly Salvadoran uh, food, like a yuca frita. Uh, once or twice a year, that's usually what I have for Thanksgiving. Oh, cute! Um, that's good. Yeah.
1: That's, a, that's such um, a good what a what a Thanksgiving dish for your own Thanksgiving holiday. I love that.
2: Yeah, because we don't. You know, I'm Salvadoran. We don't really celebrate Thanksgiving. Right. So it's an American I, but holiday. I do, right. Yeah, yeah. And but that's how I like. Like to remember my home and where I come from on special days.
1: What? Do you, but do you cook? Uh, I mean, in general, are you are you a cook? Are you are you a home cook? Not really. <laughs> Respect for uh, for you know admitting. You no, know, I
2: try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I try, and I go for as you can hear, like the easy stuff, like beans um, that you can just like live in the pot and and cook. But that that's it. I I I like to watch and taste. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, I'm sure you have picked up a few things along the w- along the way. So uh, I would imagine you have some skills. Like you're not totally sc- clueless in the kitchen. There must be yeah, there must be one dish outside <laughs> of yuca frita that you that you got. Like
2: uh, I'm sure there's something. Yeah, yeah. Platano fritos. You know that's uh, in in the morning. But that's again. I don't know. I I I think I'm comparing myself to like my mom and my grandma, who can just like bust out these huge dishes, and I'm definitely not up that level.
1: So let me ask you about New York. Like you spent some time living here and, and I think there's, there's sometimes a perception that New York doesn't have XYZ, doesn't have the, the right Salvadorian cuisine, doesn't have great Mexican, which certainly I'm not sharing that sentiment. I've heard it though. Um, what, what, but you, but you know, I mean, this, this is your background. Uh, is there Salvadorian food
2: in New York? There is. And certainly, I think it's a numbers thing. You know, L.A. has the most Salvadorans. D.C. has the most per capita Salvadorans. Um, It was hard to find Salvadorans growing up uh, in the Bay Area. Um, There are more uh, Salvadoran spots. And it's hard, in the Bay Area, it was hard to find a solely Salvadoran restaurant. It was usually like Salvadoran slash Mexican. And that, when I moved to New York City in 2012, is what I mostly found. And I understand that because you want to make money if you have a restaurant and most people just know Mexican food. Um, But in Queens, there are more and more pupuserias and Salvadoran restaurants. There's one in, in Long Island City and I'm blanking. No, not Long Island City. There's a place and I hope it made it through the pandemic called Bahia and it's in Williamsburg of all places. And that was my little piece of home when I lived in New York City. Um, and if it's still there, please go and eat some pupusas. It's in the middle of Grant, um, the Grant stop in Okay, Williamsburg Grant Street. on, the Grant, L- on yeah, I'll have Grant to hit Street. that. I've never been
1: there. I'll have to hit that. Yep. Javier, we ask all guests in the Taste podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book, Project without the burden of budget, meaning you do not have to worry about money of an unlimited funds, or time, meaning you know you don't have a deadline. You're a writer, you know what deadlines are all about. What
2: would that project be? You know, we talked a lot about pupusas. I've always wanted to find how the diaspora, the Salvadoran diaspora, has created these weird fusions all over the world. Um. I could uh, focus it on pupusas, but I think I could I would start more broad. Because after the war, a lot of Salvadorans went to Sweden and Australia and Argentina and Spain, mostly, um, and the United States. So I'm interested to just sit at a restaurant for over a decade and... Even in the Bay Area, I, I'm beginning to see fusion happen. Or, or, you know, we begin with the pupusa and the traditional yucca frita. And then you live in these different cultures, different spaces. And then the restaurant changes their recipes. So a project like that that you eat at the same restaurant for over a decade in all these different places all over the world.
1: I like the idea of over time. I, I think that is such a cool concept that could be you know used in many cuisines, but I think that's a really fresh idea about the book. I love this.
2: How the pupusa grows and changes. Yeah. And I think that's also a metaphor for a diaspora and us Salvadorans as a people and all immigrants as people. Well...
1: Thank you for writing, Solito. Thank you so much for joining the Taste Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.